My next guest, Jim Cameron from the Commuter Action Group. He advocates for Connecticut Rail Riders and writes a weekly column called Talking Transportation. You can find it in the Connecticut Mirror and in other publications around the state. Jim, welcome back, my friend. Hey, Joe, how are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for uh, coming back. You're going to hate this question. I'm going to ask you anyway, and I want you to also explain (laughs) it to people. Do you hate Metro North? No, no. <laughs> I uh, I am a what they call a, a, a commuter rail advocate. I mean, I have been involved with helping promote Metro North and make it better for over 25 years. I served on the, the state-created commuter rail council. Um, I started the commuter action group. Uh, I mean, I, I tend to write, uh, uh, you know, an opinion column. And quite often, Metro North is my target because uh, they have a lot of areas in which they can improve. They're a, they're a pretty good railroad, but they're still doing a few things uh, not as well as they could. Jim, I knew that. I just wanted I, – I saw it on your blog <laughs> that you're asked that a lot. And I, I just because somebody actually called me a little bit earlier, and, and I think people are starting to kind of understand where I'm coming from on this show, that I'm criticizing – politicians in parties because I think they can be better. And if you don't criticize something, if you just gloss over and you're like, it's great, well, why would they ever do anything to improve it? Well, as long as the criticism is fair and balanced, okay? Of course. you got to criticize the Democrats (laughs) and you got to criticize the Republicans. There's plenty of areas for both of them to improve. I oh, agree. yeah. They they certainly give me plenty of fodder every day to uh, go back and forth on my equal opportunity criticizing. Now, the reason I, I, I wanted to talk to you, Jim, you and I, last time we talked just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, all the car crashes on Interstate 95 yeah, around yeah. the Stanford area, and lo and behold... Uh, Governor Lamont announced that the Connecticut Department of Transportation is getting a million-dollar grant uh, funding from the Federal Highway Administration to support a study on I-95 to improve safety, to figure out why there's so many crashes and how we reduce them. And I saw that, and I thought of you. We just talked about that. Well, you're very kind of thinking me for that because I try to write about the highways as well as, uh, as the trains. You know, we're talking about a section in downtown Stamford on I-95 that I'm sure many of your listeners, if they drive down this way, are familiar with. Between exits uh, 7 and 9, uh, between 2018 and 2020, there were 736 car crashes in that little stretch of highway, maybe three, four miles long. Wow. Uh, there's a lot of traffic that comes down there, 120,000 vehicles a day. Uh, you know, it's usually bumper to bumper and moving along slowly. But there's so much traffic coming off of the highway and onto the highway that I think that's why they wanted to put this uh, study together. Um, and speaking of, you know, politicians, here's one of the great powers of the incumbency. You know, uh, Mr. Stefanowski doesn't have a million dollars here and there to throw around on traffic studies the way the governor could. Mm -hmm. So this is federal money, part of the infrastructure, um, you know, the Build Back Better plan of uh, President Biden. And a million dollars is going to look at this stretch of the highway and say, what can we do to improve uh, uh, traffic safety there? That's a lot of accidents. 
So I've been told, uh, we're talking to Jim Kavner from the Commuter Action Group, I've been told, Jim, by a lot of people in politics that when they do a study, that's their way of not really dealing with an issue. Do you think when it comes to this, though, that, that something will come out of it, that there'll be some sort of action plan uh, that will come well, out of I this mean, study? It sounds like you're quoting me, Joe, because that's what I always <laughs> talk about, you know. When politicians don't want to make a decision, they say, let's study it. And ironically, in this campaign cycle, transportation, which used to be a real hot-button issue for uh, everybody in the state, especially in southwestern Connecticut, is like nowhere to be seen. I haven't heard it come up in any of the gubernatorial debates. I mean, there's plenty of other things to worry about, inflation, uh, crime, uh, the borders, blah, blah, blah. I heard that in the newscast. Abortion but might come up, too, Jim. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Uh, but, you know, that's those are all important issues. But day to day, we got to get from work to home and from home to work. So transportation is really important. And I agree. I mean, the only people that seem to be making money in the transportation business these days are consultants. Uh, you know, and a million dollars to look at a stretch of highway. I mean, you give me 10 cents, I can tell you what needs to be done there. They need to do something about the on-ramps and the off-ramps. Now, it's an elevated stretch of highway. In some areas of I-95, they've done what they put, they put in what they call operational lanes so that there's an actual fourth lane that helps people get off the highway and other people merge onto the highway. Uh, they don't have that much space on an elevated uh, section of I-95 in downtown Stanford to, you know, widen the highway by another lane. But that's probably going to be one of the, you know, solutions that they're going to look at. So uh, 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 about how long out would you say it's going to be before that whole stretch of highway is probably under construction for several months as they do whatever it is they're going to do? I don't think there's a section of I-95 that's not under construction <laughs> at any given time. I, I've Fair. only lived here for about 32 years, and I've seen, you know, like nonstop construction. Same thing up at the Merritt Parkway. It's like, uh, you know, driving through a tunnel, you know, stretched between a narrow road stretched between two Jersey barriers. Uh, I don't know. It's, you know, it's. Like I used to say about Metro North, when you're trying to fix the tracks and the signals and the trains, it's like trying to change the, uh, you know, the fan belt on a moving automobile. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's hard to do construction on the busiest highway in the state in the most, you know, densely driven area as well, too. Uh, you know, you can't lose a lane to, you know, help try and widen things or, you know, rebuild. Because the highway just, I mean, it would be backed up uh, halfway to New Haven, not just to Bridgeport in Morning Drive. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I lived in Meriden and Wallingford for most of my life. I've been in Wethersfield for the past decade or so. But my goodness, when uh, 84 East and West in Waterbury was under construction for, my goodness, uh, a decade or so, uh, un yeah. unbelievable the kind of traffic. And, and even to this day, it's still... On a, any normal day, any time of day, there's just there's I almost wonder if people just naturally just start hitting the brakes just because they assume something's coming because I, I don't even understand that anymore. And it's funny, you and I sort of talked a little bit about, you know, just people being overly aggressive, 
since they've been out of COVID and if that maybe isn't playing a factor into all these crashes. Oh, I mean, there's a lot of road rage out there. And I think people are working on a very thin, you know, they're hanging on with a very thin rope to uh, their sanity and, and having to drive every single day in those bumper to bumper conditions uh, must just be infuriating. So I asked the question because look at, you know, look at the highway, look either to the right or the left as you're driving that highway. You know what you see? A railroad. And the question I always ask is, why are all these cars driving on the highway when they would be much happier, uh, much less stressed if they took the train, especially to downtown Stanford? I mean, a lot of the traffic coming down 95 is going to destinations very close to either the Stanford train station or the Greenwich train station. And I don't know what it's going to take to persuade motorists to get out of their car and get onto the train and just relieve a lot of that stress. I mean, by the time you arrive at work first thing in the morning after driving in bumper-to-bumper conditions for 45 minutes to an hour, I mean, you're frazzled to begin with. Why not work from home, work from home, or try taking the train? You know, there's got to be something that could be done to try and reduce that huge flow of traffic in that highway. I think I remember seeing on your blog somebody was like, well, I don't want to have to get off the train, have to walk into, you know, the office downtown. It's a couple miles. But, Jim, I think sort of what you were just speaking, how nice is a a refreshing walk, a stress-free walk? From the train station to your office, it's probably a lot better than, as you said, coming out of your car after 45 minutes of bumper-to-bumper traffic, probably cursing some of your uh, fellow nutmeggers on the way there. Uh, (laughs) A walk might be a good thing before you get to work. Oh, I agree. Maybe not a couple of miles, but, I mean, there are plenty of buses down that way. There are more corporate shuttles, little mini buses, short buses that go from the Stanford train station up into various parts of Stanford or down into the South End. I mean, there are plenty of alternatives if you don't feel, yeah, a nice sunny day like today, sure, take a walk. But, you know, when the winter winds are whipping around and you decided to take the train instead of driving in the traffic and worrying about ice and snow, yeah, maybe a couple of miles walk through sludge and, and, you know, sleet and rain may not be as comfortable. But there are you know, what they call the last mile, you know, that that last mile between the train station and your destination. Uber has told me in years past that something like a third of all of their rides in Connecticut are people going to or from a train station. No kidding. So there are ways of getting from that train station uh, with its reliable service and affordable fares, especially if you're going within the state, uh, to your place of work. And if there isn't one, talk to your boss. I mean, your boss doesn't want to have you coming in stressed out and angry and, you know, knocking stuff over in your office. Uh, You know, if you can come in off the train and and come and take to a corporate shuttle or something like that, you're going to be a better employee for them as well, too. So talk to them. There are all kinds of uh, state and city services to try to encourage people to use mass transit. My guest, Jim Cameron from the Commuter Action Group. You could check out his weekly column called Talking Transportation. It's in the Connecticut Mirror as well as other state publications. Jim, again, uh, appreciate you being on mm-hmm. with me. 
Now, hey, anytime, Joe. Oh, I appreciate that. You mentioned the 736 crashes the last two years on I 95 between seven and nine. There's another big issue in this state. Uh, I had no idea. Connecticut State Police get about 300 wrong way driver calls a year. That's insane. That's a that's a huge issue. Eighty five percent of these calls are generally somebody who is impaired. And so a twenty million dollar investment from the Connecticut Department of Transportation uh, to cut down on those crashes. That's a lot of money to deal with people who are, you know, as you call them euphemistically impaired. Uh, I think it usually means they're drunk. Yeah. And uh, they, but the problem is they, they're not going to just kill themselves. They're going to kill other innocent people. And uh, a lot of these occur on uh, the Merritt Parkway, uh, some of them on I-95 as well, too. But uh, um, I know that the DOT is going to be demonstrating some technology that's going to try and, you know, stop this from, from occurring more frequently. Um, it, it happens uh, a lot, and I don't know, understand why I know that some of the ramps on on the Merritt Parkway and the Wilbur Cross are a little confusing, and they're sometimes short. Uh, a lot of these uh, incidents occur at night, so maybe there's something that can be done with lighting as well, too. Um, you know, if this is going to sound cruel, but hey, it's, <laughs> it's your show. Uh, you know, if these people were only injuring themselves, I would go. Okay, this is Darwin in action, survival of the fittest. Take these idiots out of the gene pool. But to the extent that they start barreling down uh, the parkway or 95 or even 91 the wrong way, and they plow into somebody else, and that's often where the injuries really occur. That's wrong. That's sad. Um, And and I I hope there's something that could be done. You and I just should have been friends for a long time because I am a hundred percent of the same mindset as you. If if this was uh, just them doing it to themselves, yes. Um, so I guess the way this is going to work is, and and I, here's going to be my concern, right? So these cameras will detect if a car's going the wrong way up a ramp and trigger a series of red lights so the driver knows to back up and go the other way. But as I also mentioned. of these drivers are, let's just call them wasted, because that's really what they are. I don't know that flashing red lights is going to really help them. I think maybe some of that $20 might go into a nice campaign about not drinking and driving. Well, um, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, Or or smoking and driving or whatever it is that's causing the, uh, the impairment at the time. And, and I agree, you know, flashing red lights, nice. Uh, you know, I've had some people suggest that they put those kind of, you know, those those spikes that you see in in a rental car lot yep. when you're when you're driving out, so that you drive over them in the correct direction and the spikes go down. You try driving in the wrong direction and you you impale your tires. Uh, I mean, that's a little draconian. I don't think they're going to want to put that in as well, too. Uh, but, you know, the other big problem that we see on, on uh, the, especially on the parkways, is trucks. You know, trucks are not supposed to be on the Merritt Parkway. Mm-hmm. And I have pictures that are sent to me on a regular basis 
I also serve on what's called the Merritt Parkway Conservancy. But I get pictures on a regular basis of tractor-trailer trucks, FedEx trucks, driving on the Merritt Parkway. Uh, now, the reason they're not supposed to be on the parkway is they're usually too tall for the for the bridges. Right. Uh, but even if they can get underneath the bridges, the highway is not designed. It's not wide enough. It's not um, you know structurally designed to to handle the weight of a truck. And the the larger problem is that we don't have enough state police. There are only two state troopers that cover the entire section of the Merritt Parkway. On I-95 between Bridgeport and Stanford, there is one trooper. I did a ride-along with with one of them a few years ago. Uh, If we had more officers out there in either marked or unmarked cars, we could be, you know, pulling people over who were speeding or weaving or doing dangerous things. Or we could, you know, stop those trucks on the Merritt Parkway and, you know, deal with that safety issue as well. We're talking to Jim Cavanagh from the Commuter Action Group. He writes a weekly column called Talking Transportation. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, and again, we're going to talk railroads for a minute. The meaning of on time, according to U.S. <laughs> railroads, can you explain to people what exactly that, what the standard is for on time? Well, you know, I uh, I had a chance uh, to take a vacation, and I was in uh, Switzerland, and uh, I was waiting at a train station, and 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 I was speaking in my my fairly good French to uh, the station agent who was there, and I said, uh, "Is the train going to be on time?" He said, "Of course, it's going to be on time. This is the Swiss railroad." I said, "Do you know what on time means in America?" He said. It means that if it's supposed to be here at 105, it'll be there at 105. I said, no, no, <laughs> not so much. Uh, on, on Metro North, their uh, scorekeeping is kept by a train arriving within five minutes and 59 seconds of the scheduled <laughs> arrival time. And he looked just completely confused. Yes. He said, uh, if I could try my French, tu n'es pas le temps exactement. It's not the exact time. <laughs> It's, it's not on time. Uh, you know, and if you look at the on-time performance statistics that the railroad likes to brag about, and you have basically a one-hour run, and you have a six-minute margin of error, that's 10%. Now, if I could get graded with a 10% margin of error, <laughs> yes, of course I'd be pulling A's all the time. So I, I just wish that the, the railroads, and it's not just Metro-North. I mean, mm-hmm. this is Amtrak. Amtrak on their longer trains, you know, you can be hours late and still be considered on time. Uh, But, you know, come on, let's be honest with people. Is the train on time or is it not on time? (laughs) I'd love that. Uh, Jim Cameron from the Commuter Action Group. You got to check out uh, Talking Transportation. Again, you can find it in the Connecticut Mirror and uh, lots of other publications around the state. Or you could just visit TalkingTransportation.blogspot.com. Jim, I love your articles. Always love chatting with you, my friend. We'll have you back here again real soon uh, to talk more about transportation. I'll look forward to that, Joe. Now, just be safe out there on the roads, okay? You know I will. Okay, man. Much appreciated. Jim Carrot, everybody. My guest is Ingrid Jocks from USA Today. She wrote an article, Is GOP's Big Ten Shrinking? 
traditional conservatives find themselves without a home. Ingrid has worked in journalism for nearly two decades prior to starting at USA Today in May of 2022. She served as a columnist and deputy editorial page editor at the Detroit News, where she also spent 12 years as a member of their editorial board. She writes on Michigan and national politics with a focus on education and cultural issues. In addition to the Detroit News, her work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, National Review Online, the Washington Examiner, Real Clear Politics, and the Weekly Standard, among others. Ingrid, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I read your article. I thought it was outstanding, and it's. Uh, I felt like somebody was reading my mind. Um, <laughs> as a person who uh, grew up, I was always uh, a conservative. I was always a Republican. And I have not been uh, over the last five or six years, not that I'm on the other side, but I kind of felt like I sort of understood what Mm -hmm. you were talking about here uh, right now. The challenge for Republican leaders is keeping traditional Republicans in the fold while these Trump-aligned lunatics push his agenda, and it doesn't really mesh with mainstream conservatism. Yeah, well, I think you... um summed up my column really well and uh, it's something I've been thinking about for quite some time and um, myself along with a few of the other conservatives on our editorial team uh, decided to put a project of columns together just looking at what the future of the Republican Party looks like you know um, is there still a home for quote traditional conservatives who you know, don't consider themselves among um, the Trump-aligned wing of the party. And, uh, I mean, there's certainly a lot of challenges there. But I talked to a lot of folks for this piece, and, uh, you know, the the consensus that I found is that even though you know, things are far from perfect, there's plenty of turmoil within the GOP. Um, you know, as you mentioned, if you, uh, even if you aren't on the Trump <laughs> the Trump train, uh, what are you supposed to do, right? Because, I mean, there's still, in our country, there's really still only two major political parties. So um, it's not as if, if you don't like where some Republicans are going, you're just going to jump ship and join the Democratic Party. Because there's also a whole lot of things going on with that party as well. Right. A large shift to the left and and divisions within uh, among liberals. So... It's it's a challenging place to be right now. We're talking to Ingrid Jocks, a columnist at USA Today. She wrote this article about the GOP's big tent shrinking and questioned if traditional conservatives have a home. You pointed out, and it's there's not many in this country more conservative than the Cheneys. Uh, uh, Liz Cheney had a 93% voting record along with Donald Trump. Obviously, January 6th, she felt the way she felt, and has that family, like many others, being painted as rhinos and kind of pushed <laughs> out of the party. It's insane. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's just quite shocking. You know, some of the folks that are getting slapped with that rhino label, um, you know, even very staunch conservatives like Liz Cheney and um I'm from Michigan, so I was paying a lot of attention to um, <clears throat> how that was playing out here. And Betsy DeVos, who's yep. from Michigan, I mean, she served in the Trump administration as education secretary. But because she resigned 
shortly following the January 6th riot, um, she was suddenly seen as, um, you know, somebody who was standing against the president. And she's been she's faced a lot of uh, of that rhino criticism as well. It's just it's bizarre, even though the DeVosses are some of the, the biggest Republican donors uh, in the country. So um, it's very odd what happened with Cheney, even though, I mean, I think there's always multiple elements that go in behind, um, you know, whether a candidate loses his or her primary, such as was the case with Cheney this summer. Um, I mean, clearly there there were a lot of folks in Wyoming, I think, who um, who weren't happy that she was on the January 6th committee and going after Trump as hard as she was. But you know, because of all the attention she put on on that committee and her work in Washington, you know, I've also heard from a lot of Wyoming voters who just said she wasn't around enough. She didn't feel like she was representing our interests. So I think there's several factors at play, but it's still it's still just surprising to see someone like her suddenly seen as an enemy of, of the Republican Party. Well, I think especially in light of the fact, and maybe people forget this, she was the number three ranking uh, Republican right. in Congress. It's right. not like she was just some run-of-the-mill <laughs> former vice president's daughter who was riding his coattails. Right. This was a this was a legit right. Republican leader. Like uh, again, let me ask you this, Ingrid. Do the traditional conservatives, the Cheneys, the Bushes, Romneys, do they have a place in this new GOP? I talked to uh, uh, former uh, Congressman Joe Walsh last week, and he talked about the idea that a lot of these establishment guys like the Bushes, we saw Mitt Romney do some pushing back and then got put in place and has kind of remained quiet, that they're all sort of hoping when the Trump train finally derails whether that's him just going to jail, going away, or dying, that these guys want to stay in the good graces of that 30% Trump base, hoping mm-hmm. that they could pick things up in the aftermath. Do you find that, that that's true? Yeah, I I do. Um, there's not a lot of other great alternatives right now. and that, I mean, that's, that's the challenge right now is for those traditional conservatives um, – you know, can they stay in the party, still run campaigns and stay true to their principles without, um, you know, it, it, without having to reach too far over to appeal to the that 30 percent that's still very loyal to Trump? So, I mean, it, it's a concern for anyone running a campaign right now to try to find that balance. But, you know, we are seeing candidates do this. I mean, you can see Brian Kemp. In Georgia, uh, I mean, he raised the ire of of Trump, you know, when he he refused to buy into Trump's election claims in 2020. And he seems to be doing well there. And um, others like Glenn Youngkin, who, you know, he hasn't been anti-Trump, but, um, you know, as governor of Virginia now, he's he's built a real name for himself that's um, not closely associated with the former president. Um, so the same with Ron DeSantis in Florida. He's building up quite the following uh, without appealing to Trump. So, I mean, I think we're seeing some positive movements in, in that direction, but it, it's still, it, it's a, it's a real challenge because that Trump base is still very energized. 
and very involved. We are talking to Ingrid Jocks, a columnist at USA Today. I read her article, Is GOP's Big Tent Shrinking? Traditional conservatives find themselves without a home. And I thought, somebody put all these thoughts in my head into a really well-written article. Uh, So, again, Ingrid, thank you for joining us. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. So you say Trump endorsed candidates, uh, you say, you just kind of pointed out that they did better in the Rust Belt than they did in the South. In your investigative reporting here, did why do you think that is? Is the messaging just, is it is it souring now in the South? Are they just done with this guy? Um, I mean, that seems to be where things are trending. And um, I mean, I, I don't have... Exact answers as to why, but several Republican consultants pointed this out to me that this was a trend. You know, I already pointed out um, <clears throat> the example of Brian Kemp, Governor of Georgia. Um, there's also Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina. She had also stood up to Trump, and she won. <clears throat> she was able to win her primary. So, um, but things were were harder for. Um, uh, the candidates who had stood up to Trump in more Midwest states, the West Belt, for example, in Michigan, um, you know, Trump in, was pretty involved in, in several primaries here, including for the West Michigan Congressman Peter Meyer. He got a lot of attention uh, earlier this summer, and he was one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump after yep. January 6th. He was a freshman congressman. You know, it was just a few days in when January 6th happened, and he was just appalled as a, a veteran who'd served his country. You know, he was not expecting to see this happen at the nation's capital, and he stood up very strong against what he perceived as Trump's involvement in that. And um, because of that, Trump campaigned hard against him, and uh, Meyer lost his primary. So. Um, there's quite a few examples like that uh, throughout the Midwest. So it just kind of depends on where you look. But, I mean, Trump is also very calculated in in the races where he endorsed. You know, he waited a lot of times to pretty late (laughs) in the primary to kind of gauge um, who was probably already going to win anyway and put his stamp of approval on. But I'm sure, I mean, there's definitely um, his support. For some candidates, that no doubt probably push them over the finish line. But I think that's important to keep in mind, too, that he's strategic in in where he endorses. Yeah, uh, Ingrid, you know, I I forget where it was and I can't even remember, but there was a race where there was two guys. Maybe their both name was Dave. And he was like, I endorse Dave in that vote. And people were like, which one? And he waited till afterwards to clarify the guy that won is the one I was talking about. Exactly. I think that was a race in Missouri. <laughs> but, yeah, everyone was kind of like, which one? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, the one that won. <laughs> so now, so, uh, exactly. Ingrid, yeah. here in Connecticut, we had a longtime moderate Republican Senate minority leader look like the obvious choice for the Republican nomination uh, to, to battle Senator Dick Blumenthal on primary day, powered by a Trump endorsement the day before Leora Levy, who was a, a big fundraiser with the RNC, came in, swiped up the nomination, and and initially she was down 18 points. Uh, I've had her on here a few times. Uh, 
There was a, an article written in one of the papers here in Connecticut about some of the ridiculous stuff she says. She talks about the election denying and and uh, beats a lot of the, the Trump stuff. Incidentally, our race for governor is a repeat of 2018. Ned Lamont and Bob Stefanowski. President Trump, when Bob Stefanowski got the race close in 2018, came out, he endorsed Bob Stefanowski. And that seemed like in Connecticut, ah, we're different. That seemed to take the wind out of his sails, and he ended up losing by four and a half points just as he is re- really closed in. It doesn't play well here in Connecticut. Obviously, we're a very liberal state, but sure. over the past couple of days, uh, Ingrid, we have seen what was an 18-point deficit for Leora Levy close to within five points. And as you said, right, if you're a Republican and you'd hate Richard Blumenthal— you're going to have to vote for that Trump extremist. You're just going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the predicament voters around the country are finding, finding themselves in. And um, unfortunately, in the primaries, there were a lot of these more extreme candidates that made it through because it's just how primaries tend to work. You know, the, the base, the fired up base, comes out and they oftentimes will choose maybe a candidate that's not going to be as appealing to the general electorate. But um, something else I've written about quite a bit is that, you know, I think you have to be a little bit understanding of voters. Um, You know, there's so much attention in in the media to these more extreme Republicans who are, you know, all about the 2020 election and denying the outcome. And that is, incredibly frustrating for conservatives like myself. But there's also a lot of other issues that Republicans and just the country are concerned about, right? I mean, all, all the polls pretty much show inflation, mm-hmm. economy, crime, immigration. This, this is what the country is worried about right now. So if your two choices are maybe a less than stellar Republican or the Democrat, uh, I mean, that, that's not going to be an easy choice Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if you're thinking about those other things. But it's, um, it is disconcerting to me that some of these more extreme folks were winning when there were very good um, traditional principled Republicans who who were also on the ballot. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. hard to understand why, why they're winning more. Um, I'm curious if you've seen this. I've read a few articles on this, and I've talked about this a little bit. We're talking to Ingrid Jocks, a columnist at USA Today. Um, the Democrats over the summer were, through PACs, that dark money stuff, they were actually putting money in the coffers of extremist candidates over the more moderate ones, with the thought being... That come November in a general election, they could just look at the other side and be like, come on, you're not going to vote for these lunatics, are you? And initially that plan seemed like it was working really well. And now we've seen here in Connecticut and really all over the country, all of these races, uh, Warnick and Walker is a good one, where it's getting tight and it's like, oh, my God, did the Democrats seriously do that? And is this about to massively blow up in their face? I'm really glad you brought. I'm very glad you brought that up. That is something uh, I've also written about, and it was just it made me furious as a Michigan resident. Um, one of the races that Democrats did insert themselves into was 
the one I was talking about with the West Michigan uh, Congressman Peter Meyer, who is a very, very principled Republican, great guy. Uh, He was up against uh, a Trump-endorsed fellow named John Gibbs, who uh, way more extreme on the issues, also bought into the the Trump denial. Um, But he had pretty much zero fundraising and was, had no no advertisements. But then the Democrats came in, gave him millions of dollars, essentially, uh, by airing ads that, um, you know, that, that ultimately were in his favor. And Peter Meyer lost that race. And I think um, that definitely came into play. And as you say, that happened around the country. And it's, it's just so disingenuous then for the Democrats to try to say, oh, look at these uh, crazy extreme Republicans that, uh, were chosen in the primaries. You know, they did that because they thought they'd be easier to beat. Mm-hmm. But that's very dangerous if Democrats care as much about d- democracy as they say they do, uh, because they definitely helped get some of these extreme folks elected in the primaries. So that's that's an excellent point. I'm glad you brought it up. You know the show Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. Uh, the, I, I've read the book. I the, seen the, the, the Margaret yet, Atwell yeah, book. All right. So as long yeah. as you're familiar with it, you know, and I guess it's not really ever explained how this crazy conservative group takes over the country. And I've kind of implied and, and joked a little bit in the last couple of days. Could there be a scenario where maybe the Democrats uh, pushed all these conservative extremists and were like, what do you think? Them or us. And that was how The Handmaid's Tale got launched, because that I mean, that was a. <laughs> That was a terrible plan by the Democrats, and 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 uh, you oh, know, yeah. I think I saw where uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, said yesterday, like I think we peaked too early on the abortion issue, and it's like, well, yeah, you've been banging that mm-hmm. drum for four months. I think people get it. Yes, and and the fact that what Democrats, a lot of these Democrats are pushing, is goes far beyond what the majority of the country says they're comfortable with. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's been Fetterman, um, the, the Democrat running for governor in, in Arizona. Some of these folks have been asked on uh, national television multiple times, you know, do you support any restrictions on abortion? And they refuse to say they do up until birth. And that that is more extreme than most of the, the, the country is willing to sign on to. So the Democrats are also, I think, overplaying their hands. Yeah, well, that to me, Ingrid, that's another one I, I pointed out. You know, when Second Amendment people say, you can take these guns when you pry them out of my cold, dead hands, that's, it's that same rhetoric where, like, abortion right up to the moment of birth. And it's like, you don't really mean that. But when you say it, my God, you are setting yourself up to, like you said, right. sound like an extremist lunatic. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think we're hearing that on both sides. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, Ingrid Jock, columnist USA Today. Again, the article is GOP's big tent shrinking. Traditional conservatives find themselves without a home. Make sure you check it out. She's also a good follow on Twitter at Ingrid underscore Jocks, J-A-C-Q-U-E-S. Ingrid, you know, it's funny. uh, uh, I actually may have read that from you. Uh, about the Democrats funding the Republicans. Now that I'm thinking about it, that very uh, I, I'm a fan. I think you do excellent work. Again, I highly encourage people to check you out on Twitter again at Ingrid underscore Jocks. You do excellent writing, and and I appreciate. Like I said, you kind of wrote this article, and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> this is so eloquently put. Uh, these are the thoughts I've been having in my head. I appreciate you coming on and joining us. Much appreciated. Yeah. 
Thanks so much for having me. Enjoyed it. My pleasure. Yesterday, had a debate between Dr. Amy Chai, the independent candidate for the 3rd Congressional District, and the Green Party candidate, Dr. Justin Polino. And now we're joined by the Republican candidate for the 3rd Congressional District, Dr. Leslie Donardis. Dr. Leslie, welcome. Good afternoon. How are you? I am excellent. Thank you so much. I uh, appreciate you coming on. By the way, LeslieForCongress.com is the website. Uh, everybody in this race, except for Rosa DeLauro, is a doctor. I That seems to be the case. That <laughs> yes. is quite unusual, I think. <laughs> I got to tell you, I was, I was telling Dr. Amy and Dr. Justin yesterday, I love yeah. the idea of people who know science and medicine, doctors, people uh, that are yeah. smart. I like the idea of them being candidates. I oh, feel I like do too. That's, uh, that's to all of our benefits. All right. So yesterday, Absolutely. Dr. Leslie... Uh, we, we did our debate, and by the way, just so everybody knows, we did invite Rosa DeLauro. She confirmed receipt, and that's about as far as we got with her, uh, despite— I see. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, no, no debate with Rosa DeLauro. No debate, no. I, I have tried unsuccessfully myself to get her to agree to a debate, so um, that is unfortunate. Well, uh, Dr. Leslie, yeah, listen, I, don't, you know, I said yesterday, I'm like, I don't want to bash candidates, but I think it's fair right. to say— that she has an obligation to reapply for this job like every other rep does. And I agree oh, with, with well, certainly. I agree with all the other candidates. It is massively disappointing. And apparently the excuse is she doesn't have time, which mm-hmm. in an election cycle is an insanely crazy thing to say, uh, especially when there's a lot of questions about this precisely Mm -hmm. and also i will add to that that we know that congress is currently in recess right i don't know i'm not sure what she's so busy with but she's too busy to come Um, speak to us yeah if you if you do follow the news which i do um Uh and get google alerts she is um frequently uh quoted and cited um in various parts of the district in towns uh all across the district in news releases and press opportunities uh, announcing this or that federal grant or funds to local projects. So um, she is she is out and about. We, we know that she is in state. Hmm. Just got to get her to start answering some questions. And so, Dr. Leslie, I'm going to start off uh, a couple yes. of weeks ago. We uh, highlighted the terrible numbers uh, of testing for third graders in New Haven. Seventeen percent of kids are at the reading level that they're supposed to be at yes. in third grade. Only 12% were at that uh, third degree, uh, third grade math level. Statistically, mm-hmm. 60% of kids who aren't at grade level for reading and math end up in jail or dead. Uh, this is bad news for the New Haven School District. The other big cities, Hartford and Bridgeport, also put up some pretty bad mm-hmm. numbers, but New Haven was terrible. Uh, $42 million came in from federal money, and... We're just not seeing the results reflected no, in, in the no, scores. No, we are not. What do we do about so, this? Thank you. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for citing those statistics, which are truly, truly disheartening. I'm an educator. I'm a lifelong educator. Um, I teach at the college level. But if we don't start addressing our, our educational needs at uh, K through 12, you know, as a society, how are we going to have educated citizens able to assume their roles, able to participate in the workforce? And it's truly, truly saddening that our 
our folks in the inner cities are really um, trapped in, in what are failing school systems. I take that personally. I take that very, very seriously. Our, our students in our inner cities are the future. And if we are not, um, if we're not helping them, we are missing a great opportunity. Our, our human, they are our most precious human resource. You know, I, I look at those numbers, and then when I see people like my opponent rewarding school, failing school districts with yet more federal funding, I have to scratch my head and say, we don't operate that in any other sphere of life. We don't reward we don't reward failure and why do we do that with our public school system uh she had a budget um her budget proposal for next fiscal year uh gives you know an exorbitant sum of money to the department of education for federal funding and yet our schools are failing our children and it shouldn't be they should be rewarded for for performance and not vice versa i think that um you know, I've always said I've, I served on the Board of Education in, here in my town of Hamden, um, and, and parents are rightfully concerned that their children aren't receiving the, the true skills that they need to thrive. They need hard skills. They need reading and writing and mathematics. And what we do see people like my opponent funding are these, these ideas called social and emotional learning, which is just yet another fad that the Department of Education is trying to um, entice states to adopt federal funding to advance an agenda that really, to my mind, doesn't serve us well. It, it serves ideo ideological agendas. We need our kids to be trained with real skills that they can use so that they can succeed in life, and we don't have the education to, to a prison pipeline that we see in our inner cities. What is your solution uh, to help get these kids uh, one of one a, a doctor chip beckett was here uh rob hoydling's running mate and he pointed out you could triple that number 17 percent, and you'd still mm -hmm. be massively failing these kids how how do we get these kids up to grade level and and as soon as as soon as possible obviously that's that's going to be a bit of a timeline but what do you think is what needs to be done to to get these grades up well, you know, I'm going to give you an answer that probably, um, you know, some might not agree with me, but here, here I'll tell you what I feel. I don't think the monopoly that our, our schools have, the government has a monopoly on public education. I think that there ought to be an allowance for greater choice, greater choice in education. One thing that I studied as an educator and as a researcher is the idea of um, charter schools, right? I'm not saying that charter schools are necessarily right for everyone, but we've seen some areas where they have been very effective in educational outcomes. We've got some prime examples right in New Haven. We've got the glowing examples, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Amstad School and, and other uh, charter schools. They are outperforming their traditional public school counterparts. And so I think that's one piece of the puzzle. We can introduce more choice into the system. Right now, um, and it's, it's more of a state issue than a federal one, uh, but, you know, our state legislature could begin by removing and lifting the caps, the enrollment caps that they have on these charter schools. When I checked the last time, there were about three or 4,000 uh, kids on waiting lists to get into schools in uh, Connecticut and charter schools. To me, that tells me that there is a demand and a desire for greater educational opportunities, such as magnet schools. And then, of course, um, I'm, I'm sorry, charter schools, but mm -hmm. also magnet schools are another option as well. So I think we should we should we should make an allowance for this. I think we should even consider doing uh, vouchers so that parents uh, so that the, the tuition follows the students and that failing schools 
will just simply have to compete with all the other schools and will have to try to up their game. Because our kids are falling behind, and, and we are failing our children. Yeah, big time. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Leslie Denardis, Republican candidate in the 3rd Congressional District. Uh, Dr. Leslie, the thing that's really on everybody's mind, obviously, is the economy. It's inflation. It's the rising cost of, of affordability. I think that was one of the driving forces that got you into this race in the first place. Yes, it absolutely was. You know, I was um, I was not planning on running, but like many Americans, you know, as we got into the uh, we sort of headed into the spring last year, and just about along every economic measure, we saw this just huge drop off and decline. Inflation, you know, is at a forty year high. I don't think you know. You may be old enough to remember. I don't remember any of this uh, since uh, the Carter years. People are suffering. Mm-hmm. People are struggling to pay the bills. When I travel around the district and I talk to people who have to decide between, you know, their grocery bills and then the heating bills with the winter coming, it's truly um, it's truly disheartening. And a lot of these were unforced errors. And why do I say that? We have inflation. And I'm not an economist, but I do read economics and I talk to economists who say the reason we have inflation is because we have flooded we have flooded the market with federal funding, the massive the massive spending that has gone on in Congress, and frankly, my opponent has been the uh, the driving force for a lot of that in her position mm-hmm. as appropriations chair. Um, the, the, the trillions that have been pumped into the economy has caused the inflation that we're living through right now. And so I'm, I'm very concerned that we're, we are already taking a very unaffordable state, even before all of this began, and made it almost impossible for many people, particularly our seniors on fixed incomes, but working families. Everyone's having a hard time, and, and it's just, um, you know, the economy, I, I feel the federal government does us a great disservice when they, when they miss an opportunity to set forth and lay the conditions for a strong national economy. And by that, I mean spending needs to be reined in. They, they propose a budget next year that's going to be a 17% increase over this year's budget. And I ask myself, have any of us ever, uh, you know, we all have to tighten our belts and our right. family budgets. We don't get a 17% increase. Why should the federal government give itself a 17% increase? It's just inconceivable, and it's completely tone deaf to the times that we're living through right now. We're talking to Dr. Leslie Nardis, the Republican candidate in the 3rd Congressional District. Yesterday, we had Dr. Amy Chai and Dr. Justin Polino on. We did a little debate-style thing. Um Dr. Leslie was not able to be here yesterday, so we appreciate you coming on today and, and answering all these oh, same topics. It. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Yes. No, I appreciate it. I, I did have to be at my office yesterday at the college, so I, I was not able to get away. But I, I'm sure you had a robust debate. And I think, you know, the more voices we have chiming in, uh, I, I believe in a competitive democratic system. And it's great when candidates put themselves forward and offer people a choice. And I think I know my, between myself and the Democrat opponent, um, There couldn't be a clearer or more stark contrast between she and I, and I hope people see that, and I hope people see my genuine desire to be a servant of the people. She's been a servant of special interests, and she's been a creature of Washington, D.C., we need to return we the people. Um, that's what the founders intended when we look about our House of Representatives. It was supposed to be the people's house, not the uh, the special interest house. And so I think, you know, I want to go there. I have specific agenda. 
serve for a few years and then come back home to the district. But let's get some things done. Let's get this country moving again, working again. Let's get the economy booming like it was a few short years ago. I also would like to point out uh, that your your father, Lawrence, is the last Republican member of Congress to represent the third. And so, you know, you've been around Indeed. this stuff, right? You, you've been around this I stuff. Have. Yeah. You know what you're doing. I lived it. I lived it. You yeah, certainly did. I was a teenager did. when he was in Congress, and I, I, I loved politics then, and I would tag along with him when he went um, – campaigning around the district and then when he was a congressman i go with him on the saturday mornings listening tour um they the office hours and he'd go to the different town halls and the the towns across the district and he'd sit there and he'd take in and he'd listen to people and i remember as a young girl you know at some point even somebody people kind of posed questions to me and i thought to myself i'm only 14 but you know it was was a good training (laughs) somebody somebody questioned me on what are you going to do about Reaganomics? And I'm here I am, I'm 14 or 15. I thought, I don't know. And I went home and I told my mother, I said, Mom, I will never be unprepared again because I was a very serious, you know, I was a very serious and studious uh, young woman. Yeah. And uh, so that, that, was, that was a great training ground for me. But, no, he was a person who truly had the public interest at heart. Um, you know, he wasn't a career politician. He, I guess, like me, was a professor and educator. But he genuinely cared about his state. And so that's what's kind of inspired me to uh, to wage this race. On the line with Dr. Leslie Denardis, the Republican candidate in the 3rd Congressional District, her website, lesliforcongress.com. All right, Dr. Leslie, uh, where do you stand on uh, women's reproductive rights? Well, you know, um, this has been one of the most contentious issues that we've seen in our country in the last half century, starting from, you know, Roe versus Wade. And it's an issue that's deeply divided our country, and I would say even bitterly divided our country. People have very strong feelings um, on both sides of the issue. Uh, I think you're referring to the recent Supreme Court decision, the Hodges decision, which in which the Supreme Court decided to return that question to the states and the state legislatures deciding uh, on that question in, you know, with the will of the people in mind. And so I think that they they rightly return this question to the states. Um, I personally, um, in Connecticut, we already have the strongest protections for women in this area, I think, in the country. And so I think that, you know, Connecticut kind of the alarm bell need only look at the laws that have been codified and are, and are firmly in place here. Um, I personally... Um, answer this or approach this question first and foremost as a person of faith. Uh, I am a Catholic, and I believe in the sanctity of human life. And so personally, that that informs my stance. Mm -hmm. However, I do recognize that uh, in in government, the law is what it is. And as elected officials, we are are bound to uphold the law. But it wouldn't be a question for federal government. It's a question for our state legislature, and the people who who they represent. Uh, That said, there has been talk about a national ban possibly being proposed by Republicans. Is that something that you would support or would not support? So I approached that question, and it would be not just this issue, but any issue where the Supreme Court, you know, the highest law of the land, has ruled that this is not a federal question that this is a state question. And I would say that our our U.S. senators ought to read that Supreme Court decision because they obviously haven't taken heed to that. 
So it's it's not really their purview. They should allow the state legislators to decide these matters as the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, intended. And I would say that whether it's an issue that I supported or an issue that I opposed, we have to have a true federalism in this country. And I think that's much of what's gone wrong in Washington, D.C., is they have encroached upon so many areas that they have no business meddling in. So many areas, uh, whether, you know, and this is across the ideological spectrum. I'd say this uh, for issues that I am favorable towards, uh, just as much as I would say that there are issues that I don't favor. But the federal government ought to step out of the way and let state and local governments have make decisions that affect their populations in the area of public health, in the area of education, and stop trying to encroach upon, um, uh, you know, areas of responsibilities that is not, you know, they need to, to, to really keep their eye firmly planted on a strong national economy, strong national defense. Why don't they protect our borders and do the things that they're supposed to do instead of adding trillions to our, our federal deficit and debt by compounding and layering and duplicating so many of the things that we already have at the state and local level? I really appreciate that answer, Dr. Leslie. It was excellent. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, I appreciate your, your, your candor and your honesty here. That, that's, and I, I agree with you in, in large part. Uh, let's talk about the environment uh, or green energy initiatives. Um, what's your, do you uh, believe in climate change? And do you think it's something that needs to be addressed short term? Well, that is a very, very large question. How much time do we have? We've only got remaining? about six minutes, too. So if you could make it brief. Okay. <laughs> I will. I will. I'll do my level best. I mean, it's a complex topic. Yes. Um, is there climate change? Probably. Uh, what is the cause? We don't necessarily know. Um, I do think we need to make take measures to protect the environment. But the question is, it's a it's a question of degree. What do we do now? What kind of trade offs do we make? And how much do we expend on on an issue that, you know, for many people won't come to fruition for a very long time? I mean, I know folks will say, well, we are seeing evidence of, of climate change, you know, with this or that weather event. But the question is, what do we do about it? Right. So personally, I'm not in favor of the uh, Green New Deal. I'm not in favor of the um, the uh, Build Back Better so-called legislation that has envisioned billions of spending um, in green energy initiatives, primarily because they penalize uh, the carbon fuel industry. We have a lot of resources here in the United States, and we were energy independent a few short years ago. Uh, but this administration has chosen to sort of wage a war on, on the carbon industry, the oil industry, when we've got lots of oil reserves here. And uh, we wouldn't see these, these spikes and we wouldn't, be at the, um, we wouldn't be held hostage by foreign countries when they get into various um, wars. That so We wouldn't be held hostage to those international events if we could just return to energy independence. I think the, the auto industry has done a great job in making cars energy efficient, um, fuel efficient, and environmentally sound. And I don't know why we can't have the administration stop dragging its feet and allow for oil permits and for leases to uh, explore and to drill. I think that we should reopen the pipeline. I think, you know, we have, we have a lot of abundance here in this country. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue green energy and renewables. 
But those technologies aren't fully online yet. Mm-hmm. They're not fully realized yet. They, we, we've got a ways to go before renewables can actually support our energy needs. You know, I've, I've read it's anywhere between 15 and 20 percent. So why do we why do we want to stake our future on, on a technology that isn't quite up to uh, prime time yet when we've got abundant uh, oil resources here? And so that's what I would I would just uh, urge, you know, moderation in this. I don't think we should be spending the billions of dollars um, on this. I don't think the American people want it. It's not very popular. I think people really want uh, the federal government to kind of rein in its spending and focus on more um, more affordability items. All right. Last thing I want to ask you, Dr. Leslie Denardis, is about uh, voting rights, ballot access, ranked choice voting. Where do you stand on all that and understand we have about two minutes to go here? Oh my goodness! Voting rights, ballot access, and ranked choice. Oh, you're gonna you're going to really entice the professor in me. <laughs> As the former political science professor, I would probably spend um, at least a lecture, an hour on each of these items, but I don't have the luxury of that time. So yes, voting rights. I think as a country, we have we have evolved over the last half century. Ballot access and uh, enfranchisement, the, the you know giving people the right to vote has been an ever-widening process. Um, people do have, who do have a great deal of voting rights in this country. I am not a fan of all these um, initiatives, for example, the early voting, um, not because I, I think that there are still a lot of um, administrative and technical questions that need to be worked out. This is where, you know, we see the uh, ballot measure in many towns, I guess, on the ballot in November, no pun intended, in November, we get to vote whether or not we think there should be early voting. I think that we haven't really thought through the implications of that. I don't think that we realize that local registrars of voters are already woefully underfunded. What would it mean if they had to run an election for an entire month? So I don't think we've thought that through. Um, the other question um, Ranked choice voting, it's its quite popular in other countries. We don't use the here. It's a very complex system. I think we, you know, our first past, you know, we have a majority first past the post. And I think that's, I think that served us fine. I don't think we need to introduce greater complexity into the method by which we, we elect people. Dr. Leslie Denardis, Republican candidate in the 3rd Congressional District. I'd love to have you back again real soon. We can kind of maybe oh, I'd love to. get yeah. a little more in-depth about this stuff. I apologize for not giving you a, a maybe maybe not enough time. Uh, so I'd definitely love to have you back. LeslieForCongress.com is the website. Dr. Leslie Denardis, Republican candidate, 3rd Congressional District. Really appreciate your time today, like Thank I said. Thank you. I, will I reach really out. enjoyed it. Oh, please do. Yeah, I definitely will. I appreciate that. Dr. Leslie, everybody, fantastic. Much appreciated.